Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our pals at Dollar Shave Club, where you can get the ultimate shave starter set for just five bucks. Yes, five bucks gets you everything you need for an amazing shave. The executive razor, their shave butter, their prep scrub, and of course, <laughs> their post shave do. Yes, just five dollars to get your ultimate shave starter set at dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. Again, dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. And now here's our show. Peter King, three-time national sports writer of the year, NBC Sports. Let's go back to your Raiders story. You don't like that they're leaving. You talked to Brent Musburger, who is now the voice of the yeah. Raiders on radio. Hey, look, I think I think Vegas will be a really good place for the NFL. This is not anti-Vegas. They've been so fantastic with the Golden Knights, but but Brent Musburger, who lives in Vegas, obviously now, yeah. uh, and he told me a couple of very interesting things. Number one, there's not going to be a tailgating place around the stadium. So one of the things about that makes the Raiders so great is that they have a college atmosphere in the parking lot before the game. It is huge. People build their lives around the eight Sundays or, or ten, whatever, if you go to the preseason games. And that's not going to really exist now. Now it's going to be a lot of hotel shuttles dropping you off at the game. It'll just be weird. And the other thing is, there's not going to be a black hole. And so I still think they're going to, in time, find their niche and all that. But I'll tell you, when I go to a Raiders game the last, I don't know, I've been to three or four of them in the last 10 years. It's I, I just, I have such a great time because I want to be somewhere where people are passionate about their team and they the this these this fan group has been slapped in the face so much this raider fan group and or the raider fan base and yet they come out every game they'll come out against the jacksonville jaguars they're not making the playoffs the jaguars aren't what does the game mean they don't care they just want to kill the jaguars yeah, and it's it just—it's a—it's a cool thing to see. Yeah, and Gruden's got a little rebel in him, so yeah. Gruden plus the Raiders is—I I still contend it's a top six or seven NFL brand, despite being no question dormant for about fifteen years. Welcome to Good Seats, still available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello and happy holidays, everybody. This is Tim Hanlon, and this is, of course, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. I can't think of anything that's uh, fresher on the what used to be front uh, than uh, the uh, now recently departed, we think, uh, we're pretty certain. Uh, the Oakland Raiders, of course, as the uh, as the Raiders get ready to to leave the the Coliseum after all these many years and uh, and domicile themselves in the uh, brand new spanking gigantic uh, monstrosities of a stadium uh, called Allegiant. I guess it's Allegiant Stadium or Allegiant, whatever. Allegiant Airlines is sponsoring in Las Vegas, where they will be known as the forevermore, the Las Vegas Raiders. It'll be hard to sort of get used to saying that, but, uh, you know, maybe not. I mean, this is a team uh, that's uh, f- uh, flirted with uh, and actually moved a couple of times. Uh, on its own already in the Raiders franchise, as you heard there with uh, Colin Cowherd and uh, and Peter King uh, on a recent episode of The Herd on uh, on FS1 uh, debating, I guess, and discussing sort of uh, the good things and the bad things about the Raiders uh, moving on. And, uh, you know, it's a sign of the times uh, and uh, many signs of times that occurred during the course of uh, this calendar year, uh, 2019. And as we wrap up uh, this uh, fun filled and uh, adventurous year. 
uh, certainly for this little show. My God, we've had uh, so many great guests, people like John Sterling and Dennis Murphy, the founder of the ABA and the WHA, Ed Tepper, uh, the co-founder of the Major Indoor Soccer League, uh, Bob Carpenter, our, our pal uh, uh, from uh, broadcast uh, world of, of soccer and then some, uh, and obviously a great uh, year for him with the the Washington Nationals, Howard Baldwin, a long uh, sought after guest talking about some of the early days of the uh, the World Hockey Association. And of course, uh, we lamented the demise of things like the uh, Alliance of American Football uh, this year as well with uh, a bunch of guests, uh, Connor Orr and Michael uh, Rothstein uh, and, and many, many others. So many stories that we sort of went into. But we want to wrap up this year and kind of look into uh, 2020, which what I'm sure is going to be a full of adventure uh, pile of, of intrigue uh, as we look into uh, the brand new year with uh, two returning guests as we kind of do a little holiday roundtable. We're going to try to make this sort of our first annual of such. And uh, if you go back into the archives, you will uh, enjoy uh, our conversations that we uh, previously had uh, with our pals on this week's episode. Paul Reiths from our episode number 46 when we got into the USFL for the first time, uh, who is the uh, founder and chief proprietor of uh, two great sites that you should bookmark and, and visit regularly, OurSportsCentral.com, uh, which is devoted to just about everything in minor league sports today, uh, mostly of the present, but certainly of the past variety as well, as well as the uh, his uh, sister site called StatsCrew, StatsCrew.com, uh, which is uh, arguably the uh, fastest growing uh, statistics site for, uh, for pro sports, uh, both of a major and minor league variety, uh, as well as... Uh, our other guest, if you go back to our second ever episode, his name is Andy Crossley. He, uh, the uh, uh, general manager of the Boston Breakers of Women's Professional Soccer, uh, the and of course the uh, proprietor of uh, the uh, amazing site, which just continues to grow by leaps and bounds, literally every week. Fun while it lasted. Fun while it lasted. Dot net, uh, which is literally the, uh, the 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 probably the internet's biggest treasure trove, just short of of Wikipedia, maybe even better than Wikipedia when it comes to teams and leagues that are no longer with us and defunct and, and, and whatnot. And we couldn't think of two better guests, Paul Reese and Andy Crossley, to kind of go over a little bit of what we uh, learned this year, uh, some of the things, the amazing stories, some of which we saw, some of which we sort of didn't see coming, uh, as well as maybe put a little uh, uh, prognostication or two out there into what uh, we think might uh, transpire uh, in the year forthcoming at, uh, that of 2020, the XFL in particular, uh, being one of the next generation of it, uh, and a bunch of other things that we're going to keep an eye out for. And we encourage you uh, to give a listen to this fun-filled episode that where we're going to kind of get into a little bit of uh, the past, uh, the present of 2019, and the future uh, of 2020, and then some in this little genre of forgotten sports uh, history or history to be made uh, in our conversation, our fun-filled holiday extravaganza Coming up with Paul and Andy on this week's episode. Uh, stay tuned for that in mere moments. And before we get there, we want to say uh, an end of year thanks to uh, four of our great uh, legacy sponsors. And uh, while it might be a little too late to uh, kind of get those last minute gifts uh, for the sports fan uh, in your life. Now, uh, now's a great time uh, to at least write down these sites, bookmark them. And, uh, you know, maybe with some of that holiday cash or, or perhaps uh, as you trade in some of those things that you didn't want, uh, and you actually find it maybe something that you really do want at, at one of our great sponsors. And, uh, here they are in succession with promo codes to boot, give them a chance, give them a try. Uh, you're going to definitely find great stuff, not only in, 
at the tail end of this year, but in, in the year to come in 2020. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Hey, you want memorabilia from all kinds of leagues and teams no longer with us or previous, previously domiciled? SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Check them out. Promo code GOODSEATS. And Dean Mitchell, our pal there, is going to give you 15% off all of your purchases at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Promo code GOODSEATS. Uh, let's see. What about OldSchoolShirts.com? Of course, P.F. Wilson and his band of merry men and women in Cincinnati. OldSchoolShirts.com. Great stuff. Great logos, not just only of teams and leagues that are no longer with us, but also uh, great pop culture uh, reminiscences such as uh, bars and restaurants and uh, amusement parks and all kinds of other fun stuff. OldSchoolShirts.com. Use the promo code GOODSEATS there. For 10% off all of your purchases, again, OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS. How about StreakerSports.com? Yes, of course, the StreakerSports.com has lots of great stuff from lots of great leagues, as well as other pop culture stuff like the Onions Collection uh, or perhaps the Caddyshack Collection. Uh, all kinds of great stuff uh, for you at StreakerSports.com, the purveyors of sports culture they are. And of course, we've got a promo code for you there. Good seats. Yep, that's the promo code. Good seats for 10% off all of your uh, purchases at streakersports.com. Promo code good seats. And last, but certainly not least, our pal Dustin Alameda out there in uh in uh, in the Portland, Oregon area. And of course, it's 503 Sports. 503 sports.com. They fancy themselves as the king of throwbacks, and you're going to find uh, not only shirts, but great jerseys and stuff of teams and leagues of your. And uh, we've, of course, got a promo code for you there. And that's SEATS. Yep, the promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, at 503-sports.com, and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there at 503 Sports. Again, that's 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS. Check them all out. We appreciate their patronage. Uh, of this show all year round. And uh, we look forward to more fun things in 2020 as well. We appreciate you checking them out, giving us some love by doing so. And uh, now sit back and enjoy our, uh, our year ending conversation uh, with Paul Reitz and Andy Crossley as we get into, like I said earlier, the past, the present, and even the future of, uh, of this crazy little uh, genre that we've uh, carved out for ourselves here at Good Seats Still Available. And uh, here's our chat that we had just a couple of days ago. Gosh, I don't know. It's a, a year-end uh, thing. This is like our third year now. And, you know, geez, it's hard to believe. But uh, God forbid we should do like a year-end show and stuff. And I can't think of uh, of two guys who would be uh, more appropriate, uh, uh, arguably because of uh, a shared sort of illness, I guess, in uh, in our uh, in our, uh, ob- obscene interest in things that uh, no longer exist in, in pro sports. And I, uh, I appreciate you guys taking time. And hopefully it'll be a, a fun little excursion, I guess, into... I don't know, a little bit of what happened to our little show this year, as well as your general assessments and stuff uh, as we kind of, I don't know, uh, endlessly continue to focus on this stuff, which seems to kind of continually make more stories. Yeah, that's kind of the fun part about it is that we're dealing with all these endings, but there's never really an ending to the endings. (laughs) Well, for sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Tim, I was just going to say, I, it occurred to me a couple of days ago that I have known Paul by name for probably 20 years because I vividly remember like reading his website as an intern, um, my first year doing PR in minor league soccer. 
And then I remember having OSC on my um, post-game distribution list when I had to send out game stories and things when I was working in minor league baseball. And I would go to the site all the time. And then we've corresponded by email occasionally over the years. And then I realized the other day, I've, I've never heard Paul's voice. And I was like, I, I'd like to, I should probably try and get an idea of sort of what his, his style or his tone is before we get on the phone on Sunday. And I was like, he's probably done something with Tim. So I, I, I looked up the USFL um, podcast that you guys did, which I had not heard at the time it came out. Unless I listened to that at the gym the other day. And I have to say, I was like astounded at how, I mean, I knew Paul had written a book, but just like how authoritative he was on the podcast. I think like one of your sort of most like assured sounding guests that I've heard. And uh, I kind of felt like I was listening to like a guest on like a Ken Burns documentary or something like that. So on the one hand, I was like, oh, this is really making me look forward to Sunday. And on the other hand, I was like, this is a little intimidating because he seems very respectable. Um, (laughs) I'll do my best to dispel that notion. (laughs) But I thought that was a great, great episode. Well, high praise for sure. And and, uh, thanks for doing all that extra, extra homework. But but maybe before we kind of just get rolling here, why don't uh, both of you, maybe Paul, uh, with that kind of setup, maybe you'd be the best person to start. Why don't you give, uh, remind our audiences, uh, plural, right? More than one person, uh, hopefully listening. Your background, Paul, what you uh, what you uh, are doing, what you have done. Uh, obviously, you were a guest on our uh, on an older episode about the USFL and other other exploits. And then uh, and then Andy, why don't you do the same? Sure. Kind of my uh, my thumbnail history here is that about uh, 1997, I started a, a USFL website, uh, very small, uh, just commemorating the the history of the league and. Uh, it, I felt like it got some good traction, good viewership. One of the most popular pages on that site was dedicated to other football leagues, other outdoor leagues that were in development, uh, something, things like the Professional Spring Football League, uh, as well as indoor leagues. And uh, once I put that page up, it really revealed that there was a desire uh an audience that desired information on on these small and alternative and minor leagues. So I I grew that into another website uh, called Our Sports Central, and that launched in 1999. So, uh, Andy, if it feels like you've been uh, communicating with me or looking at the site for 20 years, you're you're dead on. Uh, You have. It's been out there for that long. Uh, And that has grown, and it's the primary resource online for small and minor league sports for independent baseball and minor league baseball and basketball and indoor and arena football and all those fun things. Um, so that's been my, my primary focus um, in addition to, to writing the USFL book and, and launching a, a statistics website that also includes major leagues as well as all the minor leagues that our sports central covers. Yeah, and uh, for for those who have not heard that episode with uh, with Paul, that was uh, our episode number forty six, where we kind of delved into the uh, USFL. I think, if, frankly, for the first time, and then obviously we had a, a bunch of other episodes, and frankly, a bunch more, hopefully, to come uh, about that sort of seminal and um, <laughs> still timely <laughs> uh, for various reasons league of uh, of the nineteen eighties. Um, but if you uh, as you as you go back into the into the archives. 
Uh, you'll also uh, want to go back to our very second episode, uh, which was with Andy. Uh, and Andy, maybe you give us give us uh, a background about uh, about your monstrous website, uh, uh, Labor of Love, as well as uh, other things that you've been doing. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Boston. Uh, still live near Gillette Stadium, where the Patriots play, and um, was always very, you know, very taken with sports as a kid, playing and and um, and and watching, and I had the collector's gene. And uh, when I when I grew up, I went into working in sports. I worked in the 1996 Olympics as a college student in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and then moved back to Boston and worked in the United Soccer Leagues. Um, spent seven seasons, eight seasons, seven or eight seasons in uh, independent minor league baseball. I was the general manager of a team called the Brockton Rocks. And then went back to soccer and was the general manager of the Boston Breakers of women's professional soccer for a few seasons. And during my last year of running the Breakers, which was 2011, uh, the league that we played in was clearly about to go out of business um, throughout the whole season. It was just sort of a, a death spiral. And um, in the evenings when I'd get home, I, I started like writing down some stories and posting them to, to a blog called Fun While It Lasted. Um, but also um, sort of pairing my own stories from my career with um, stories of some other teams that had um, come and gone, gone out of business. And that was almost 10 years ago now, and I've just kept it going, um, although I no longer work in the professional team sports industry. And it's become sort of more encyclopedic over the years. So we have profiles of over a thousand defunct sports teams and 10,000 or more photographs and pieces of vintage memorabilia that are up alongside all of those histories. All right. So, so let me jump into for both of you guys then and kind of maybe just delve into, and this is maybe, I think maybe going to be sort of an annual uh, assessment, I guess, or, or analysis, right? If I, if I'm able to, uh, to, to analyze myself, although uh, it's probably dangerous without a professional. But uh, I'm really always curious as to find out why others uh, out there uh, in listener land uh, somehow have stumbled across sort of, I guess you could call it a borderline obsession. It's certainly a niche for sure. Uh, around these leagues or teams uh, that um, perhaps caught our attention, uh, maybe evaporated, uh, maybe sometimes even in, in, under the darkness of night. And, you know, perhaps why the ongoing fascination and I, I, I mean, I'll start, but I'll then let you jump in. I, you know, as, as most listeners of this silly little show know, I, I really kind of got hooked, I guess, on, on what became sort of this obsession with the, the old North American soccer league, right? With the New York Cosmos growing up as a kid, going to giant stadium and, and, you know, amazing times. And only in, in retrospect, do you sort of appreciate uh, how tremendous a team uh, and a collective of of stars and talent and and just a, a white hot comet of a whole bunch of cultural things at that time, uh, and obviously in the in the midst of my you know uh, you know young uh, years, my early adolescence and even teenage years. So there's clear clearly some of that too. But fascinated by all these logos and teams that seemingly kind of came and went, and sort of didn't have any sort of long lastingness to them. And and then you know whatever happened to them, and that just sort of begot sort of other fascinations with other leagues like the USFL and others that sort of came and went. I mean, that's kind of my story. And it's always been gnawing at me for a long time to do something about it, whether it's a book or some kind of website, certainly not to the, the level of, of the tale that that uh, Andy or even Paul have been doing. But, um, you know, the podcast genre just seemed to be natural a couple of years ago when 
I was fascinated with the idea of having conversations around this. God forbid there be other people out there with memories and or similar passions. But what is it about this sort of weird little genre that I arguably we've kind of just defined for each other that uh, that that fascinates you guys from your perspectives? Uh, maybe, Paul, you start and Andy, go ahead. You know, I think that what caught my attention is I'm an 11-year-old kid who's just really getting into to football and sports in general, and here comes this entire other professional league, the United States Football League, which provided professional football virtually year-round. Uh, that that grabbed my attention at that age, and it's, it's kind of that age when you're just so impressionable and the things that you take an interest in at that point are some of the things that you can carry through for all of life because they just seem to be magnified uh, kind of in my existence. Uh, you know, I was able to to watch a lot of games. I was able to follow uh, the, the sport, the, the league in USA Today. Um, and so, you know, it, it just looms so large in my, my sporting memory. Now, now, kind of uh, as it's grown, it's been fun to uh, look at the business side of these leagues. It's been uh, just so so much. It, it brings a different layer to it, even just examining the business aspects of it. Uh, I mentioned USA Today, and I, I remember looking at the agate page, all the standings in there, and I'm like, "What is what is this major indoor soccer league?" What is uh, what is this Western Carolinas league? You know all these other leagues, and you would you would get a taste of some of the nicknames. And I'm like, man, I wonder, I wonder what this what do the Los Angeles Lasers look like? Uh, and it was still kind of hard to find a lot of information about these teams. So it's almost like this alternate universe of sports that at one point I didn't know existed. You know, the, the, I knew Major League Baseball and the NFL and the NHL and NBA, but there's so much more going on out there uh, and even playing different sports that I hadn't seen before, such as such as lacrosse. Uh, so to me, there's just this endless uh, stream of, of newness, um, whether it be in the business operations or in the, the actual team play, that that's endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I could have said what Paul just said, pretty much word for word. Um, and and I feel like um, everybody that I've asked a version of this question to says starts off by saying, "Well, I was ten or eleven or twelve years old, and this happened." So I think it is something about that age, and the and the way that passions can imprint themselves on you at that point in a way that they can't when you're when you're older, mm-hmm. um, that things just stick. And, um, and I also think, um, you know, Tim, not to call you old, but <laughs> there's a lot of soccer people from the seventies who the New York cosmos is just this like nexus for. And then it, I'm, I'm making some math judgments based on what Paul just said, but I think Paul is close in age. There's a lot of people, for whatever reason, a lot of boys who came of age in the 1980s where the USFL was just a thing that really like landed with them because the names and the logos and the colors were just more exciting than what the NFL did. And things like, you know, Paul mentioned like the major indoor soccer league and things like that would come across, 
you get like you'd, if you had cable TV, you'd get these things on like tape delay at weird hours of the day. Like you'd be homesick from school, and at ten in the morning there'd be like an indoor soccer game on from all the way across the country in a league that you'd never heard of, and it would be fascinating. And then, and then I think the other thing was like to find out more if you were intrigued. There was this like thrill of the hunt because it was so hard to find out anything about these things that were going on in other parts of the country that weren't really, really big. So I remember, you know, major indoor soccer league games on cable being really intriguing, but that league really never came to New England. And so the only place in the 80s pre-internet that you could find out about it was this little magazine that came out six times a year called Soccer Digest. And I think there was one newsstand in Boston and one in Cambridge that I ever found that sold Soccer Digest. And one of them was in my town, a mile and a half from my house. And so every couple months, I would guess that a new one had come out and I would, you know, ride my bike like two miles to this spot and I'd sort through, you know, in the back room, all of like the outlaw biker magazines and porn magazines that was where they kept the two copies of soccer digest they ever ordered and I would grab it and I would, um, and, and that's how I would, that was the only way <laughs> that you could find out about these leagues. And so I do think there was this thing where like the detective work itself was part of the appeal. Yeah, I think that speaks to uh, it's another way of sort of saying too that uh, the media landscape certainly has has evolved over the decades, right? I mean, you know, you're, we're talking about cable television sort of in its infancy, and you know, lots of new channels, uh, as Bruce Springsteen would say, literally with nothing on that that needed to be filled, right? And uh, you mentioned the MISL. I, I remember, you know, watching a, a, a game in tape delay on Channel 11 in New York. It was a New York Arrows game that had been played at Nassau Coliseum. Uh, earlier that uh, that evening, it was like, the first season of the league, and the the game just crackled on my television set. Now, the the fact that it was eleven thirty in the night, you know, I was up babysitting for you know a neighbor down the street, you know, you know maybe had something to do with it, but but you know this this sort of uh, limerick green carpet and and all this sort of frenetic, you know, bouncing orange ball around the it's just you know arguably in, in a media landscape. I mean, how many channels were out there in 19 or 1979 or so? Not many, right? Even in New York, you only had a handful of, of TV channels. So, you know, there was a limit, I guess, and maybe add maybe adds a, a bit of mysticism to this leakage, I guess, of little bits and pieces of these things, these leagues, these teams, maybe in the agate in your, your local newspaper, maybe you know, on an off night uh, on a, a local TV station or a cable network that you've never heard of. But yeah, I do think that ad- added some sort of level of, uh, of of intrigue and magic on both some of this stuff. Yeah, I remember our our local newspaper in central Wisconsin running a photo of uh, from the MISL championship game, and it was between uh, uh, the Minnesota Strikers and the San Diego Soccers. And uh, the photo carried a tagline that that didn't include the final score of the game. Uh, I, I called in and like uh, called into the paper. Well, what was the final score of this game? They're like, we have no idea. We just thought it was a cool photo that came over the wire. Uh, and I couldn't find it anywhere. This Again, uh, this is pre-internet, and there was just nowhere to find it. I think a, a, like a week later, I finally found it in, in USA Today. Uh, so it, it was, there was a, a, a mystique to it. And yet when you would get these 
these glimpses of the leagues when you would see the Baltimore Blast soccer ball descending from the arena roof and all the energy and the smoke and, and big crowds in places like Kansas City. You're like, what, what am I missing out on here? Uh, this, this, this is really great. This is fun to watch. Uh, and, and yet it was so hard to find people who had ever even heard of these things. And yet they were ongoing operations in big cities that in, in some instances were playing to sizable crowds, uh, and yet they were mysteries. So that, that kind of that, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a dichotomy, but uh, always struck me. And, and there, you just wondered, well, what could, this, what could this be if this were exposed nationally? And, and to a degree, we've, we've been able to receive some of those answers, uh, you know, as the years have gone on. Uh, but it was always intriguing to me when I was younger. That's another thing that Paul just hit on too, is that like he mentioned that, you know, you'd have a sport like indoor soccer where there was these incredible pyrotechnics and they played music during the games and they were really creating these like entertainment events. And in that era, not only was the media landscape different, but the people who ran major league sports looked down their noses at that and it never occurred to them that they were in the entertainment business. They were purely like people like, you know, Red Arbach um, or the Yockeys running the Red Sox and the Celtics, you know, they weren't going to, they weren't going to um, have a dance team and they weren't going to have a bat music for players. So those things were true innovations that were happening out on this fringe of professional sports that were totally new and a lot of those executives who made those innovations then went on to bring those to the major leagues as they got older and developed in their careers. Um, today, when you look at a lot of those sports like indoor football leagues and box lacrosse leagues that are doing those same things, the music and the pyrotechnics and the dance teams, to me, it really just comes off as a lower budget knockoff of an NBA or NHL experience because all the major league teams understand that that's their business now and they can do it better. But back then, it was really something that was totally different and it didn't seem as chintzy and and kind of low budget because they were the only people doing it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put a name on that, right? Uh, the Wiki brothers, all four of them, arguably the... Uh, the unsung heroes, I guess, of uh, of the uh, major indoor soccer league, who kind of brought all that sort of sexiness and promotional sizzle and video and fast moving and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they were promotional geniuses, all of them, and a number of them have gone on to uh, very significant uh, and long lasting sports careers in the you know uh, in the the pantheon, I guess, of what is today you know big bu- big money, big budget uh, pro sports of all kinds, right? So it's just ironic how how some of these things kind of got started in in these you know, call them sort of a challenger leagues or not even that, right? These sort of obscure or new sports and all that kind of stuff. And and how, how ironic that uh, that they become more mainstream in all of professional sports. Just ramping up that that entertainment value, as Andy mentioned, uh, it, it, never, it never occurred to some of these, especially the old guard, that this was about entertainment and you could provide additional entertainment uh, to the game that was being played. So if your team stunk, you could still bring people out to the arena, to the stadium, by by entertaining them. And and it did take a while for that to catch on, but 
you know, I remember looking in Sports Illustrated and seeing a, a feature story on the Cleveland Force and thinking, how awesome is this? They have Darth Vader out on the field, and their team name is called the Force. You know, what what genius came up with this? And and how much of that has spread from from these small leagues, from from even minor, the things that uh, started off in minor league baseball that uh, the majors have incorporated. So that it, it's always been a blast. You know, that's one of those business aspects where you can look at that and say, hey, you know, th- th- these guys really kind of changed how big league sports are presented. All right, give, give me a sense, both of you. Your 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 efforts right now are are, are pretty significant, and, and if you know anybody who's uh, either researching or, or ser- searching for information about uh, various teams and leagues and all this kind of stuff will we'll, uh, inevitably either currently uh, a lot of Paul stuff or or in the past, which is the repository that Andy's been building up for a bunch of years. Um, you know, we'll probably stumble across your uh, some of your stuff easily on the first page of a Google search. What drives you guys to keep doing this? And and, and frankly, maybe, you know, kind of why? Uh, it, it almost feels like there's a bit of sort of something that's maybe slipping through our fingers here. I don't want to put words in your mouth that, uh, you know, perhaps needs some preservation and or has not been done elsewhere. I, I'm just curious as to what continues uh, both of you to, uh, besides the big bucks, of course, wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, to keep these uh, personal passions uh, alive and uh, and going, Tim. You know, from my perspective, you you just use the word. It's preservation. Uh, it's knowing that uh, so much uh, so of the the North American Soccer League and the the, the major indoor soccer league, the United States Football League, uh, hundreds and thousands of hockey teams. Uh, basketball teams, uh, minor league baseball teams are no longer around, and there, there just didn't seem to be really much of a, much of an emphasis on on keeping those memories alive. Uh, so you know, I, I've I really have thought a lot about preservation lately, about preserving the logos, these identities. Uh, that in some cases are so striking. The Cosmos is a perfect example uh, of this, just this enduring identity, and, uh, along with the stats. Uh, the, the, but you know, the stats are a lot of numbers, but they can kind of tell the story of what this team was about in this particular season. Okay, why did they finish three and twenty-three? Or you know, conversely, how did they how did they pull off an undefeated run? Uh, it's you know what? What memories might that spark uh, from somebody who attended one of those games, and maybe it's long forgotten. You know, or maybe not. Maybe it's a guy like uh, I went to see an Iowa Barnstormers game. It just happened to have a guy named Kurt Warner at quarterback that night. You know, this, that's part of his story. So keeping that alive, that 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 preservation aspect is is really what's driving me right now. Yeah, Andy, I know you've sort of waxed and waned in terms of your passion. Uh, how, how have you kept it going for all this, all this time? Um, I think it's a few things. One, is, so one thing is I am, I, as, as will probably come out later when we talk about some of the leagues that folded this year and some of the new ones that are coming online, I am deeply skeptical about a lot of the things that happen in the industry and a lot of the business models. And my feeling is that a lot of it is going away. Um, and a period, every once in a while, somebody asks me if I'll look at like a business plan or talk to them about an idea. Um, 
and every once in a while it's a serious idea. <laughs> and I almost always am in the camp of advising people not to put their money into these kinds of things um, when, when I'm asked. And, uh, and that was a big reason why in 2011, when the, when the league that the Boston Breakers played in was going out of business, that I didn't try and get another job in sports. I just didn't, I didn't see a good, a good future in continuing to do that. So part of it was a, was a desire on my part to sort of keep my passion for this kind of wild entrepreneurial like frontier of sports as a part of my life without actually having to base my livelihood on it or, or work the crazy hours that you work in that industry while I was just getting married and starting a family. So part of it was just a way to keep a passion going while simultaneously moving away from it. Um, I think another part of it is, is that history is never really the, you know, what you thought it was. That's, <laughs> that's why nostalgia exists. So like I do, for me, it's sort of like uh, the, the preservation that Paul talks about is in some ways a, a way of like preserving like a view of what, you know, America used to be like, or what your childhood used to be like, it may not actually really be quite true, but it's sort of a way of, of like showcasing what you thought was uh, an idealistic um, part of our culture. And so to me, like the, the you know, minor leagues are a very like hyper local kind of thing, um, you know, and at their best, they kind of reflect the the communities that they're from and they're not just these sort of generic brand extensions that that like replicate themselves out across the country and all look like one another so i think um you know the idea of creating a place where people can go who grew up you know like you know paul is and told me he was in appleton wisconsin so somebody who grew up in appleton could look at could go to my site and find you know, game programs from the Appleton Foxes minor league baseball team from the 70s, and they might be able to say, my God, I remember going to that ballpark, or I had that program in my hand once when I was a kid, um, and let them kind of experience that, like, sugar rush of nostalgia. Um, that That's pretty appealing, and, and periodically, I, I get a lot of, like, genealogy people who come to the site who are trying to figure out if their dad played for a particular team or owned a team. And if we might have anything we could share with them. So that's always kind of a nice rush when somebody reaches out to you for a reason like that. Well, you know, it's it's also interesting, too, with this uh, this little format that we've done, which is more, you know, obviously interview based and stuff. It, it's a weird sort of uh, line between, I think, a bunch of those things that you're talking about. And, and obviously, the more modern where things are, you know, more first person and people have actual recollections because they were there. Now, they may also you know, have a bit of, of hagiography and, and the way they remember being there, you know, and, and the, the actual memories of their, of, of what they did at those times. But obviously there's a, there's a line where, you know, as people sort of get older and die off and, and we go back in time, right, uh, there are less and less uh, uh, first person memories. So then it becomes more of a, I don't know, almost a history exercise where uh, you get into conversations with people who, you know, for whatever reasons have done their own uh, particular research or work or passion projects to kind of unearth and or uh, uncover or, or roll over a couple of rocks from, 
either things that they grew up with, you know, a generation or two earlier, or somehow are otherwise fascinated by for, for whatever reasons. And that's kind of the balance we've tried to sort of do on this silly little show is to kind of, you know, it really has just become a gigantic pot of, it. you know, it doesn't really matter for us, I guess, if the team was, you know, uh, in the uh, the Federal League uh, back in the, the early teens, right? Or, you know, the AAF, right? Where we had two conversations for a league that nary, you know, lasted uh, four months and, and, you know, died an untimely death about six months ago, right? So, to me, you know, I, I, I try to find sort of themes, and I, it's very interesting. Almost unwittingly, there have been themes that just keep recurring on this uh, on this journey. And, and you know, things like uh, boys and their toys, right? Uh, uh, men, usually, uh, historically, you know, with fortunes made elsewhere, uh, either trying to recapture lost youth of their own or just simply uh, enjoy the fun, if you will, of, of owning a professional sports team, uh, all the way to things like labor relations uh, uh, and the manner by which labor and or players uh, and ownership do or don't get along with each other, uh, hold each other hostage, if you will. Uh, real estate, uh, you know, the building of ballparks uh, d- b- dating back to the earliest days of, of, of pro baseball's uh, uh, beginnings, you know, now is front and center with a lot of the, the economics behind the new Braves ballpark or or anything in major league soccer. And, you know, it's just, but it's interesting. Everything old in many respects is new again. And to me that that's the, the most fascinating thing that keeps me going because despite, and we'll get into some of the new stuff coming around the pike, but you know, uh, there are things that are, you know, obvious like the XFL coming back again, but, but things that are, you know, I think a generation or two just don't even realize that, you know, these aren't necessarily, uh, new leagues or new propositions or new ideas, you, all you have to do is just scratch the surface a little bit and go a little bit further back and we'll see some of these very ideas were tried and and, and failed miserably uh, decades ago. And, and that to me is just endlessly fascinating when you can make that connection between that of today with something from, from the past. And it, just how these leagues can kind of show what was going on either within the sporting industry or even within the country at the time. Uh, you mentioned the Federal League. What better way to show the acrimonious relationship between baseball owners and players? And we've seen this uh, kind of echo back over and over with uh, different strikes and, and uh, other labor impasses over the years. You look at the United States Football League and how many of the owners had their hand in shopping mall development. Well, how many shopping mall tycoons do we have around right now? This this was an 80s thing where they were able to tap into those people for ownership. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, we've, we've got these, um, these other alternative football leagues where there's no great history behind it since the, the American Football League uh, merged with the National Football League. So the, part of you is scratching your head like, why would these guys ever sink? Literally, they're going to lose tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and not only did we have a league this last year, but we had another one lined up already to go next year. It's, it's just a fascinating industry. Some of it is that it doesn't make sense at times. Uh, but that's the fun of it. It's like, all right, let's see where this goes. All right. 
right, what's this? Dollar Shave Club, of course. Dollar Shave Club is uh, is awesome, friends, and I highly encourage you to give them a try. I love the quality of their products, and it's uh, it's awesome uh, that they asked me to do a little spot for them because uh, I've been using their products for a good, I don't know, year and a half, almost two years now. And um, uh, I love the, uh, the convenience. I love the quality of the products. I love the fact that they uh, help replenish uh, my needs to uh, help me, not just with shaving, frankly, but just about all kinds of uh, grooming essentials when it's, uh, you know, whether it's showering or shaving, uh, but also styling one's hair or brushing one's teeth. Yes, even, you know, wiping and keeping clean certain areas of uh, of the body elsewhere, shall we say. Dollar Shave Club is not just about just a good shave, uh, but so much more. And we have an awesome opportunity uh, for you to uh, experience and enjoy uh, some of the uh, benefits that I've been uh, sharing uh, from the friend, our friends at Dollar Shave Club just for you, our, our great listeners. Right now, you can put the quality of Dollar Shave Club's products to the test. Their Ultimate Shave Starter Set has basically everything that you need for an amazing shave, and it's a great way to try and, and sample for yourself the Dollar Shave Club experience. In this starter set, you get the Executive Razor, you get the Shave Butter, you get their Prep Scrub, and you get the <laughs> Post Shave Dew. Uh, say that three times fast. The best part, of course, though, is that you could try it for just $5. That's right, 5 bucks, and you're going to get the Ultimate Shave Starter Set, including all those things. And after that, They'll get you set up for restocking with uh, regular size products at their regular prices. And you can, of course, choose to uh, receive those as early and as often or as not often as, as you need uh, based on your uh, your particular needs. So in essence, it's uh, five bucks for the Ultimate Shave Starter Set uh, from Dollar Shave Club. So get your Ultimate Starter Set for just five bucks uh, at our little special website here. It's dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. Again, that's dollarshaveclub.com dot com slash good seats uh, for you to try for five bucks. Yes, just five simoleons. Uh, the uh, ultimate shave starter set from our friends at Dollar Shave Club. We thank them for their sponsorship of this week's episode. And we, of course, thank you for continuing to listen to our conversation coming right back at you. Let's jump into some of the, the stories that sort of happened this year, right? So, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear your your guys' thoughts on both of the the football leagues that one came and went literally within the span of one year, and one kind of stumbled to its second death. Uh, the latter being the Arena Football League, the the second uh, or maybe third, if you will, incarnation of such. And uh, maybe just maybe we start with sort of the beginning of the year. This uh, much ballyhooed and first of the new challenger outdoor football leagues uh, called the AAF, the Alliance of American football. I mean, you know, when, when one sees or saw that first uh, set of games, uh, the lead up to it, the, uh, the, the centralized ownership, the, the logos, the, uh, uh, the, the approach, the, 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 you know, it seemed that the investment, it all seemed like it was very well thought out and, you know, had a, had a good sort of model and approach uh, attached to it, and and it went horribly wrong so quickly. Not even to the point of even making half the season. Um, were you guys surprised at the Alliance of American Football's uh, quick demise, or could you have seen that coming, if you will? I'm su- I'm surprised at your positive assessment of how good things looked at the beginning, and I'm wondering if you could explain that further. Well, okay. Uh, the 
it seemed to me like they had thought through, you know, the idea of of, of finding players, uh, putting together at least what, what at least was publicly announced as a business model where uh, players would get uh, certain uh, basic salaries. Uh, there was a you know sort of a unified combine. Uh, the uh, the marketing and the logos, the, the the city selection, a lot of it seemed, and again seemed, right, like it was it had a lot of forethought to what was going on. I mean, I think it's only after you know a couple of weeks and a couple of months where people sort of recognized there were lots of cracks in that, and and you know maybe maybe one should have been more cynical, especially somebody who's been focusing on on all the stories and the and the the flops of of your. Um, but I don't know. It seemed like, you know, they they kind of knew what they were trying to do, which was be, if you will, you know, somewhat of a developmental kind of uh, operation with, you know, with some 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 thought about, you know, maybe how to make the economics work beforehand. At least that's what they were certainly socializing. And obviously, maybe that wasn't just true. Right. I, I feel like so it's interesting to me, a lot of the things that you're assessing as as things that the AAF seemed to have going for it are really football operations things. So like they had a combine, you know, they knew where to find players. Um, but, you know, Paul said on uh, something that stood out to me on the show you did with Paul about the USFL is, you know, and Paul, I'm going to paraphrase Paul, you can't run a professional football league without a television contract. You can't, but there's no other source of revenue to run such a capital intensive project. And they didn't have any revenue at all in that league. I mean, television or otherwise, but television being the critical absence. So it doesn't really matter if you have credible football people and coaches. All that stuff is, that's all the expense side of the ledger. Um, so they didn't, you know, they didn't have, they sort of transparently didn't have anything going for them on the revenue side. Um, so it wasn't surprising to me that they couldn't, they couldn't make it work. Um, I don't know, Paul. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to split the. I'm going to split the difference with you guys, um, uh, Tim. I saw a lot of those positives uh, in the product itself. Uh, I think that they had and, and uh, put a lot of thought into timing rules and about getting the games played in a nice, tight two and a half hour window. So even some of the the kind of the defensive uh, slugfest uh, where you had a few turnovers. They, they really felt so much more crisply played than they should have. You, a team would score a touchdown. Uh, they'd uh, you know, try for their uh, conversion, and then we'd be at the other end of the field with the other team snapping the ball. There wasn't all this dead time with a, uh, an extra point where there's a 96% chance you're going to make it. Then a kickoff that went nowhere or was penalized, it, it felt very crisp. Uh, but, Tim, you're exactly right. Uh, excuse me, Andy, you're exactly right, too, in that uh, without that television contract, you can average 30,000, 40,000 people in those places, and you will not come close to seeing the black. You have to have television on board. They have to be kicking in. Uh, perhaps there's some way to mine other deals, but it's got to be based off of that and your exposure on television. Uh, and that is what really had you concerned about the Alliance at first. They're on NFL Network for most of their games, which is kind of hard to find, even though it's on a lot of cable systems. Uh, what gave you a, a sliver of hope was they delivered that opener on CBS 
Uh, I thought that it went well. Uh, they had a game on TNT. Uh, that went well enough that TNT wanted another one. Uh, but behind the scenes, there was no revenue at all being produced from that. They needed to make it through the first year before they ever saw Dime One uh, from any TV partners. And it, it, it just had, because of some of the football operations, had spent an enormous amount of money. And you're going to spend an enormous amount of money no matter what. But I think maybe carelessly spent some money in some places uh, that it, it only made it through uh, the eighth week, I think, and then, uh, then it was done. So to me, the, the, the thing that will always be funny about the Alliance of American Football and that is the most memorable about, thing about the league and the thing that makes it unique is that it was created because a guy did a documentary about another league that was pretty much the same idea that lost a hundred million dollars in one year and thought I should take a shot at this. Isn't it funny? That that is the ultimate epitaph of that league. (laughs) Two leagues jump off of that documentary. It, It essentially, after that documentary became a competition of who was going to hit the field first. And, uh, the XFL, the, the new XFL, uh, knew that they needed to take their time and they knew, needed to set things up. While the Alliance, they, they, they wanted to do their own thing and they wanted to beat the XFL to the punch. They, they felt that they needed to, to beat the XFL to the punch. So that's why the Alliance launched this last year. They, they needed more time, but they knew they couldn't take it. But the jumping off point for both groups was really that documentary of just kind of spitballing memories on this one-year run that the original XFL had. Well, look, Char- Charlie Ebersol remi- uh, remains on our on our uh, our wish list, but uh, we did have a, a great conversation with Brett Forrest, who wrote uh, uh, one of the only books, frankly, about the XFL years ago, so much so that it's still out of print, but uh, it brought back some some happy and some not so happy memories both for him and some of the some of the stories that he sort of brought up in the original XFL but let's so let's let's do a little prediction and what of this new XFL again i mean you know the the idea of buying time for television exposure uh, as you're alluding to in the AAF is still actually what's what the XFL will be doing albeit in uh larger i guess containers and some broadcast networks and stuff but um I don't know. You're describing something that, frankly, could easily apply to the XFL next year as well, in it being potentially doomed. And the, the XFL, XFL has a TV contract that doesn't pay it any money this year. Right. Correct. So they're right in the they're right in the same boat as everybody else, except that their boat is fortified with McMahon money, and that is something that the Alliance never had. They they mm-hmm. never had the financing in place. They had uh, apparently it was Reggie Fowler who was the original backer there who ran dry and, you know, eventually ran into some legal trouble, which is why he was running dry. Uh, Tom Dundon stepped in only to see actually how expensive it was. And it wasn't his passion project from the start. So, you know, he had no idea. and He, had, he did not want to continue it any further. But the XFL has McMahon, and by no means am I going to argue that the XFL is destined for success. That is probably the most foolish thing you can do from a from an historical perspective. But the original XFL fulfilled its commitment. It it finished off the year and when the partner pulled out, uh you know, the league had to shut down. McMahon's not going to necessarily be too surprised by how expensive it is. He's got 
money that he's already set aside for this venture. Uh, so, you know, to me, the shocking thing would be the, if the XFL did not make the season. I, I would be very surprised by that. I'm going to hold off on saying that season two is a certainty, but I would be very surprised if the XFL folded during the year. I agree with that, and I'd be surprised if it only played one year. Be- just because I think, like you said, money is not an issue for McMahon, but I think it would be incredibly embarrassing to fold it after one year for a second time two decades later. And so I think it could bleed money and still get three years purely because of ego reasons. I mean, that's, that's just a totally unfounded projection, but it's, it's hard to imagine him doing one and done twice. And it's just fascinating that he is jumping back into the pool. I mean, he, he knows he knows as well as anybody out there what the expenses are. Uh, what I do really uh, appreciate about the way that he's going about it this time is that if there's something that that uh, didn't uh, catch on the first time around, it was all this pro wrestling style bravado and NFL in your face nonsense when everybody knew it was minor league football. Now he's got a guy like Oliver Luck as his front man, his commissioner, who's respectable. He's not tweaking the NFL nose. They, they, they've met with Goodell. Uh, you know, not necessarily that they've got their arms around each other, but it's a much different venture in how they're trying to, how they're trying to portray themselves the second time around. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see at that first game on, uh, on, I think it's on ABC or is it Fox? I forget uh, in, in Washington, DC in the uh, DC United uh, soccer stadium. And I, I don't know. I, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see how MetLife stadium looks for that first New York uh, guardians game. I, I don't know. Right. Um, you know, it just seems like it could be just a bigger, and again, it comes, it'll probably come down to the football and the quality of that. And arguably maybe that's, you know, they've got that covered again, but then it comes down to, to your point about revenues, uh, generating fan interest. Um, to me, it'll be the third chapter perhaps of the trilogy that, uh, that, that documentary and arguably the, uh, the 2001 adventure of the XFL uh, brought to light in the first place. Well, one interesting thing though, that's come out in the last couple, couple weeks is that um, the XFL has already blocked the NFL from picking up a couple of quarterbacks it had under contract. Mm-hmm. So um, a couple a couple of teams with big injuries at the Lions and the Steelers had reached out about Landry Jones and Josh Johnson, who had already signed XFL contracts. Now the AAF let players out of their contracts for those kind of opportunities, but the XFL has said no. And one thing that's interesting, and Oliver Luck has come out and basically said, you know, this is us doubling down on quality of the league. Quarterback position is, you know, essential. This is us showing our fan base that we are devoted to putting the best possible product on the field. And and, then we would do this for any player that's under contract in the XFL. Well, that's all well and good. But at the same time, the salary scale in the XFL, quarterbacks can, I guess, make up to a half a million dollars. But all other players make between about thirty and $50,000, depending on bonuses. And so I think one of the things that made a league like the USFL really good football is that those teams really invested in things like good linemen. Um, if you are an offensive lineman who's a marginal NFL player, 
are you going to sign with the XFL for $30,000 and take yourself out of consideration to be signed by an NFL team for upwards of a year um, when a single NFL game check is going to be more than you would make for a whole year in the XFL? So I, I just wonder whether that that policy combined with the the very modest salaries that they're playing is actually going to keep them from getting the kind of talented role players that are necessary to have a high quality football product. Well, it'll be interesting for sure. And you wonder too about the timing, right? Uh, as the AAF did, they they really wanted to strike when they, they thought, of course, that the proverbial pro football iron is still hot, literally the week after the Super Bowl. I, I don't know. You, you could make the argument that that maybe the XFL could learn from maybe I don't know, a gap from that, that there could be, you know, a need to pause for at least a couple of weeks, perhaps, and and give people a chance to sort of catch their breath and, um, you know, and, and, and recognize that maybe football doesn't necessarily have to continue, you know, endlessly in a sort of a, an everlasting sort of loop. But, but let, let me segue into the other sort of debacle that sort of occurred just a couple of weeks ago, which was the, uh, I guess, the whimpering uh, end of the second a true version of the Arena Football League. Obviously, we had uh, uh, Jim Foster on the show, one of our earlier guests, uh, talking about the uh, the earliest days and setting up that league and, and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, it seemed like the uh, the current version of the of the Arena League was you know kind of trying to do it maybe the right way, trying to centralize ownership, uh, starting small. You had people like Ted Leonsis and in Washington and Baltimore and a few others that sort of wanted to grow, you know, small and. And steady as she goes, but uh, it seems like the uh, the uh, the spirits, I guess, of the of the previous incarnations and and some of the the uh, the woes of the previous league uh, kind of caught up with it. I, to what do you ascribe the uh, the collapse of the of the arena league this time? And uh, does it ever come back again? Or are we uh, really looking at indoor football truly being as a minor league uh, activity? Uh, you know, in the years to come, if at all. I mean, I don't see it rebounding uh, as a large market league. Uh, I I wouldn't have uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody bought uh, the intellectual property and refounded the Arena Football League. But I think you're really going to see places uh, such as Albany uh, be what the league has to look at, uh, paying big uh, arena rents such as you know Madison Square Garden or. Yeah, I, I just don't think that that's going to happen anymore. And it's, it, you know, it's it's too bad. The Arena League was, uh, you know, one of these novel ideas. We talked about the the major indoor soccer league uh, earlier. Well, here's here's a kind of a knockoff of the you know indoor soccer that really thrived at times, uh, but couldn't sustain its own weight over the long haul, and and really has kind of withered away through one bankruptcy and, and, and a restart. Uh, and it just got to the point where, where really one lawsuit, uh, you know, was enough to, to just throw up your hands amongst the continuing losses and say, you know what, we're, we're, we're out. Now, I don't think it's a sport that people really want. I've been to a few games. I think it looks really cool from the outside. It's had some really creative marketing, but, um, you know, watching watching teams march up and down the field scoring a touchdown on like 80% of every drive and taking all of the nuance of, of football out of the game for the most part to have basically just, you know, 
passing touchdowns one after another after another, it gets kind of boring pretty quickly. And um, except for, a, it's kind of like indoor soccer. There's a few markets that just passionately latched onto it over the years and would do 10 or 15,000 people a game for a decade. And everywhere else, it just kind of has a, a short two or three year run and then the, and then people lose interest. So I, and I'm just not sure that there's a demand for it. Well, before we get off of football, I want, I want to get to your sense. We're recording this uh, on the very day when supposedly the last game of the uh, Oakland Raiders will be happening at uh, whatever the Coliseum is called this week. I, I, I tr- truly have lost track of the name of, of the Coliseum uh, over the years. But um, uh, what do you guys think about uh, Oakland moving to Las Vegas? And and, and are we uh, – I'll throw in another sort of wrinkle to that. Are we kind of near – peak NFL you know we've got uh, the Rams and the Chargers supposedly going to be sharing a, a brand new uh, monstrosity in Los Angeles and uh, you know the NFL is uh, you know king supreme but you know lots of issues sort of lurk behind the behind the scenes but uh, you could make the argument as many in the television industry sort of do that the NFL is sort of at its uh, its supremacy and is arguably propping up the broadcast television industry while, uh, at the same time are we kind of at peak here and or what, what do you sort of see of those particular situations and then elsewhere and onward in the NFL and football? I mean, I, I think you have to look at the the networks and how much they're willing to shell out. Uh, I, I don't know that I've seen the indications uh, that, that anybody's thinking about withdrawing on the next deal. I think that would be, if, if you're looking, has the NFL reached this peak, that would be the sign, is if one of the networks saying, you know what, we've lost a lot of money on this deal. I, I'm not sure that we're interested in bidding the same on NFL football anymore. Uh, but as you mentioned, it's one of the few things that is enduring on television right now with splintered audiences uh, all over the place. But the NFL can still draw numbers, uh, and it's one of the one of the very few things that can do that. So I don't know that I'm looking at that as uh, looking at NFL as peak until I see television start balking at at paying what they have. Um, You know, as far as the Raiders go, you know, uh, the Raiders are such an interesting case in that, you know, one of the original American Football League teams, really the the add-on American Football League team after, after the Minnesota Vikings withdrew, and they didn't draw flies for their first few years. Uh, they were a shambles. They they were kept afloat by the other American Football League teams, and yet here they are, one of the most valuable sports properties in all the world, and that's uh, only going to increase next year when they are playing in a, a fantastic new stadium in Las Vegas. And you, you kind, can kind of see why guys, uh, rich guys, keep gambling on, on some of these, these niche sports is that uh, for – a fraction of the increased value of the Raiders. They're more than eager to try it out. I just think we should take a moment to pour one out for the last stadium in NFL history that will have had a baseball diamond on it during NFL games. That was, I just remember that being a ubiquitous image of my childhood gradually got less and less and less until it was only the Oakland Coliseum last where you would see the A's diamond in the middle of the football field. And, and now there's a rule forbidding any new stadiums from ever having that. So this will be the end. Yeah. Sad or, or, or maybe it's progress. I, you know, um, it's, it's debatable, <laughs> right. Um, 
Well, I, well, let's let me segue then into uh, just things outside of football. I, by the way, I you know have, have, going to Las Vegas about twice a year for for work related conferences and stuff. Uh, you talk to just about every cab driver uh, in Las Vegas, and uh, I, I don't I think you know nine out of ten of them are are just uh, hugely wary about uh, about what uh, what to expect with the with the with the Raider crowds. And the dynamics of of what's going to come to to the city, but I, I you know, to me that's going to be a very interesting experiment to sort of see what what occurs out of that. But let me let me let me get into things like Major League Soccer, right? Talk about uh, you know expansion fees, and uh, you know we're now uh, looks like Charlotte is uh, going to be the uh, the thirtieth team at or twenty ninth team at uh, it's rumored at something close to two hundred fifty million, maybe even more dollars for a franchise fee. Uh, you know, and two more apparently getting ready to line up, um, building soccer-specific stadiums. Is is MLS kind of reaching peak? I, we, we you know talk about revenues and stuff. I their contracts are coming up too, and while they are still getting paid by uh, various networks, it's certainly you know a drop in the bucket relative to that of the NFL. And yeah, you, know, you can make the argument that that it's not nearly as successful, not even close uh, to the to the property of of most of the major other leagues in the United States. Uh, you know, can the United States or, or North America support 30 plus uh, pro teams and, and a USL, which is wholly owned by a by a, you know, by a by a company uh, on the minor league level? I, you know, I, while I, I'm a huge soccer fan. Right. Um, and it's amazing to see all the investment and uh, supposed uh, belief in the sport uh, and, and, and raising professional uh, soccer to 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 greater heights. But. I don't know. Some of this, the the cynic in me, kind of feels like a, a lot of the scaffolding is is kind of rickety. Uh, am I making that up, or what do you guys think? You know, I I don't think that there's uh, any question uh, that looking at looking at it as rackety uh, scaffolding is is probably historically accurate. is a is a good mindset to go into it with. Uh, now, I'm with you. Uh, if you're, we've talked a lot about. Uh, these leagues that have gone out of business, and but if you're looking for the growth sport right now, it is outdoor soccer uh, at the major league soccer level. Thirty teams for something they nearly shut down not that long ago until the Hunts talked them out of it. Uh, it it's astounding, really. But it, it's not only uh, it's not only contained in major league soccer. There's also you know a thriving Division Two league with USL championship and they're building their own places for the first time they seem to have real traction in building buildings i mean louisville city is going to be opening up a, a fantastic new place colorado springs just announced so you know new facilities popping up everywhere now along with those new facilities you have a good draw but also you will soon have a a local reason for uh, the municipality to have a vested interest in these teams. So, you know, if somebody runs into financial trouble, there's going to be a real temptation on, on a municipality's part that has sunk millions into a stadium to see that the team doesn't go away. So it, uh, it really has been astounding to me. And then we, we've got a Division Three uh, league that um, – while it's not as successful maybe as other Division Three leagues, I think that the environment, knowing that there's 60 teams above them, 
it, it's it's interesting that, that they're able to have something going, and, and we'll see if it builds or not. Well, Andy, you were in the pro game. What do you think? Um, I mean, that's an area where I'm more optimistic than I usually am and probably more than, than, than you are, it sounds like. But uh, I, I think it's really hard to know what's going on with Major League Soccer. There's not a lot of transparency into their balance sheets necessarily. Um, they have a lot of momentum, certainly. But, you know, they have a lot of skeptics and they have a lot of believers. But the, the thing that I think is and the reason why I'm more in the optimist camp um, and feel that they are fundamentally different than the league, some of the leagues we talked about earlier is all of the building blocks that they are putting into place are the building blocks of what make leagues successful, which is controlling and owning their own buildings, controlling all the revenue streams that come with them, having revenue generating TV contracts. And they're part of a community of world soccer leagues where there is a, where they can look to other countries and see models and best practices that have made teams incredibly profitable and incredibly valuable. Sports like lacrosse and arena football can't do that because there's no leagues anywhere in the world that have ever been successful running those sports. So there are no models. There's just dreams. Um, so conversely, when we talk about things that a sport like arena football or, or the National Lacrosse League or Major League Lacrosse might be doing right, again, I think they come back to things that they're doing right operationally, but they don't have the fundamentals of success in place. They're renters in other people's buildings. They don't have TV contracts that are worth anything, and so they're destined to muddle along. So to me, I think they're doing all of the right things, um, but as Paul said, it's still a very expensive proposition. And then at the lower levels, I don't like the this second and third divisions. I don't think it's, and, and having worked in those divisions, I don't think it's clear yet what the purpose of those divisions is. So you have a, you have a place like Louisville FC that Paul just mentioned that draws huge crowds and is building their own soccer specific stadium. But then you also have teams that are just, you know, um, they don't even have their own branding that are just called things like Atlanta United 2 or Seattle Sounders 2 that seem content to play in front of 150 people and be purely reserve squads for the major league teams. So it's not clear yet what the point of a Division 2 or Division 3 U.S. pro soccer team is. Is it to be a profitable entertainment business or is it to be um, just a taxi squad for a major league soccer team? And I think until you know until you know the point, you can't really say whether it's successful or not. Yeah, and and you're dancing around the other thing from a, from a soccer purist's perspective is sort of the idea of pro, promotion and, and relegation, right? And and it, the the idea, the hope, the possibilities that there could be some latitude of of a team that does well, say at the third level, to go to the second level or vice in in the, in the top level. But you know, there's there's the artificiality, and this is again one of those themes that. We've uh, we've we've sort of discovered over the last couple of years with this silly little show, which is the idea of single entity, right? So you're you're mentioning transparency or lack thereof with Major League Soccer, right? There's no way in hell that you know uh, you know a three hundred million dollar franchise fee in Charlotte, right, is going to then say, oh sure, uh, we'll allow second and third division teams to uh, potentially knock us off on occasion, and we'll go down to a second level uh, if we don't perform well one year, right? But yet, you know, there you're kind of you're putting your finger on on something very, very, I think, crucial and important, which is what is the purpose of those 
pyramidical uh, teams underneath that major league soccer and and what of the ability to kind of maybe uh keep all of those markets kind of fresh and, and interesting uh, all across the lot like like it occurs in other other leagues around the world the the promotion relegation argument is, is you know it's kind of funny from an american perspective because there there seemed we seem to realize yeah uh, a guy who spends several hundred million dollars isn't going to get knocked down a division too it's just it's not going to happen i don't care if he goes over the season uh, it's ridiculous he he would have the bulk of his investment wiped out in one season not going to happen uh whereas there there really does seem to be promotion i mean cincinnati you dominate your business is good you have prospects to build a stadium here's your invitation to give us 250 million dollars and we'll you're promoted and you know it's what's happened with sacramento as well so it there there is some kind of promotion uh there's just not going to be relegation well, I wonder too, uh, and Andy, this might be uh, appropriate too. I, I wonder too that uh, as these, uh, uh, as this infrastructure, let's call it, is is getting more solidified and, and arguably stable uh, in soccer, starting with MLS, right? That that it actually perhaps gives the lifeline to uh, the the NWSL on the women's side, and and uh, you know maybe it does help create sort of a a nice prism of of support across a lot of different sort of soccer efforts, and I guess ultimately. You know, the, the only proof of that will be if, if we ever are successful at competing on the, on the world stage, which seems to be uh, completely uh, uh, almost in the opposite direction at this point. So I, I don't know what to make of all of it. I, you know, again, I, I, I'm a fan. I love to see all this stuff sort of happen. And, and you could never have dreamed this, you know, 30, 40 years ago when the old NASL was, you know, fumbling around. But um, I don't know. It, it, does, it does feel to me uh, uh, there's a, a bit of artificiality to it. And you wonder about the quality of play relative to to other leagues. and But, you know, to, to your point, Andy, right, there are the sort of foundational elements there that maybe takes a, still a number more years to kind of sort of play out. And as those revenue streams, which are more, you know, directly controlled, uh, may indeed wind up becoming sort of the uh, substantial rooting that the sport needs in this country. Don't know. Well, let me let me uh, throw out one sort of a general sort of toss up, guys. So um, as we sort of round the curve here, give me a sense of of some of the other leagues out there and some of the other teams that perhaps are, uh, I don't want to say on your <laughs> uh, future defunct radars, but um, uh, I'm sure this could be the sort of the fun round where we can kind of speculate. I mean, I in a world where a half billion dollars for a new NHL franchise uh, come in Seattle, uh, when I don't know. You could pick probably two or three or maybe more teams that are somewhat wobbly uh, in the NHL that get uh, you know are are arguably uh, in need of of some uh, of some some support or perhaps moving. But I, I see some some uh, you know vulnerable franchises in in all of the leagues, the NBA, uh, our, even the NFL, uh, certainly Major League Baseball. Uh, what are your thoughts about sort of uh, various teams in in those leagues uh, uh, making it or perhaps maybe prime for uh, rethinking, shall we say? Well, none of those big four leagues, if you take them all together, have lost a franchise since 1978. The Cleveland Barons of the National Hockey League are the last of the NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball, or NFL teams to actually go out of business. So, I mean, name me another industry that in the last 40 years of American life has not lost a single participating business. So, I think they're safe. <laughs> you know, you can you can horribly mismanage a team and, and lose 
tens and tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on a team like the Phoenix Coyotes, but it's still going to be valuable enough for somebody else to at least buy it and move it. So there may be cities that lose teams, but um, I don't think in the near future anybody's going to be going out of business in any of those four leagues. And, and you'd look at what would they would be giving up, and that would, in a lot of cases, would be this unbelievable, unbelievable revenue stream from television. So there, there's your there's your reason uh, that somebody's just going to buy it somewhere and horribly mismanage it. Yeah, they're fine. They'll be fine in the long run. And in addition to that, even if you are losing money on operations year after year, you've seen this increase in asset value where a team that sold for $200 million uh, maybe 15 years ago now sells for 500 or $750 million. That's worth hanging on to. You are not going to kill off that asset. Even if you're losing money on a yearly basis, you're going to keep that asset alive until you can sell it for a big profit, until you feel like the market has reached peak and, and, and you can just sell it off. So I look at the big four as, as bulletproof. They have been so fortified uh, by television that you don't want to say that they're, they're failure-proof. Nothing is, uh, but they are in excellent shape until TV box. All right. Well, so, so I, I, I won't get into the, the Tampa Bay Rays or the, the Los Angeles Chargers or, you know, uh, some of these other Memphis Grizzlies, perhaps even, uh, you know, um, but uh, let me throw out two sort of uh, curveballs. Right. So you're I think, you know, Paul, you're mentioning one of them, and that is television. Right. So uh, the day job uh, of yours truly is is in the in the realm of uh, of television, media and advertising and uh and all of that. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, we are in, in amazingly challenging and difficult and different times uh, when, you know, people are cutting the cords and the artificial uh, uh, subsidies, if you will, that 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 keep ESPN going and and all these regional sports leagues uh, going is, is starting to fray. And then some uh, as people get more opportunities to more directly subscribe to things and uh, maybe not. Uh, keep things like sports, maybe if they're not interested uh, in their bloated, uh, formerly known as cable packages. So I guess the one sort of uh, variable I would throw out there is television. Does that continue unfettered? Does that continue to be the uh, lion's share of the revenue generation? Or uh, does that maybe go a little bit sideways or askance when uh, people are, are rethinking how they watch and pay for television uh, going forward? And the other thing I would sort of throw out there is the economy writ large, I want to sort of get into political sort of spins on all this, but from a purely sort of economics kind of uh, perception and, and, and you know, tapping into my, my MBA studies from at least a decade ago, right? Well, I, I arguably we were, we're cyclically overdue for some kind of, I don't know, call it a correction, call it something, um, where, you know, another, you know, a speed bump, a, an air bubble or whatever in the realm of uh, consumer confidence and or uh, uh, discretionary spending capabilities for things like professional sports, when arguably the, the, the ticket prices are, are obscenely out of control as it is now. I just wonder if, you, if, you, if something upsets the apple cart when it comes to television and or a general economic, at, ver at the very least, slowdown of sorts starts to occur, do we 
do we continue to have a world of 30 or 32 professional soccer teams or 30 baseball franchises and you know and 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 football games on on you know almost every night of the week on television and that kind of stuff or are we overdue for maybe a pause uh, in that sense the the television argument i think is is interesting i'm not sure that we're na- we're standing on the precipice at this point uh, i think that we are seeing uh, further splintering uh, of audiences. Uh, but as we mentioned, you know, the NFL is one of those things uh, that uh, I'm not going to say that it's immune, but it hasn't nearly eroded to the point that other things have. And so possibly television is looking at it, uh, that they're having even more incentive to hang on to it because they don't know what else they can do to to hang on to audience. So in a sense, it may even be increasing uh, value uh, to them to, to keep these leagues, even at, even at a loss. Um, how that's going to develop, you know, I don't know. It, it, it's super interesting. You would have said a year or two ago that, you know, the NFL was showing signs of vulnerability. And it, hasn't, it hasn't continued, you know, quite the same course. Um, the you know, baseball, hockey, uh, basketball, the NBA teams, they're, they're, they're very valuable to these regional sports nets um, to the point where the Cubs, you know, launching something, the, the Yankees have something going on. Uh, do we see more of that? Do we see more of an attempt uh, on these teams to, to hold all the revenue tight uh, to where they do their own thing and they sell their own uh, $200 season package and Pocket all the all the all the television money. Um, I don't know, but you know, right now I don't yet see TV balking too much. The NBA and the NFL are going to get their money somewhere. So if if there comes a point where, you know, it, it may be that in, in five years or ten years, when when the rights fees come up, the story is now the bidding war between Amazon and Netflix for the NFL rights, and not between Fox and CBS or NBC. It's like, but the property is still going to be valuable and they're going to get it. It may just be that they're getting it from one of the new players instead of one of the old players. I think the, the, the more, the more near-term question is like there, when will the next recession be? How bad will it be? And will league like the WNBA or major league lacrosse be able to, to weather it? Like to me, those are sort of the probably, you know, you asked what are sort of, feels at risk and you know major league across you just took some body blows this year and they have a severe a serious competitor now who seems to have a business model that's a lot more appealing to the most talented players um so you know but they're also but their owners are also you know for the most part of those leagues dealing with with pretty good um economy so if that all changes like you said tim then kind of i think all bets are off for some of those leagues yeah, and and the, the the leagues that you mentioned, uh, they would be uh, very vulnerable to a twenty thirty percent hit in paying attendance, uh, whereas you know the majors uh, could weather it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that'd be sort of my last sort of question. On all that is, uh, you know, uh, you could also extend this into the, the the football bowl season, which to me is always the fascinating. You know, forty one 
uh, games and uh, I just, you know, got my little uh, my little uh, uh, league going with my uh, my family and friends, which we've been doing. But it's just, you know, it's just the insanity of, of those games. And, and you know, you recognize why they are right. And ask anybody in the uh, in the Mac conference, right, about playing games in the middle of uh, of November in cold, rainy, empty stadiums, you know, in, in the Midwest on Tuesday and Wednesday nights, right? It's all about it's all about the uh, the Benjamins that they're getting paid to basically fill time on television and you know, we can argue the merits of that or the demerits of that. Um but it it doesn't escape and I you know, I I have this sort of uh, uh sort of lurid fa- uh, uh, you know, fetish to sort of see all these empty stadiums uh not only in the college game but in the pro games, right? I you know, ticket prices and 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 attendance and all that kind of stuff I don't know. It it just seems that you uh, you are one economic hiccup away from uh, a lot of things and a lot of uh, uh, situations kind of uh, of changing. And and I think maybe Andy, you're, you're you're hitting on it that the things that are a little bit more fledgling, shall we say, are a little less uh, substantially stable. And this is where your commentary on the ML on the MLS comes into play and is it becomes almost a bellwether of all this, right? You, you maybe the argument could be that, you know, MLS is spending all this time on the real estate thing and owning all their revenue streams and not renting from others and trying to be, you know, solidifying the the foundation so that when it does starts to rain heavily, uh, there won't be flooding, but perhaps some some well-drained uh, models that uh, kind of allow it to weather those storms, maybe relative to some of those other ones that we're talking about, like futsal, for example. Maybe we'll end with that one. You remember that one from three or four years ago? I mean, Mark Cuban and, and others were talking about how how indoor soccer uh, futsal style was going to be, but um, I don't know. It, it, to me, I, one, I love to hear your commentary on that one, if you, even if you gave it a moment's of thought. But number two. Strangely, despite all the logic that we just described, um, and I know Andy, you, you've got one that you want to sort of throw out there from the from the media side, and I'll let you talk about that in a second uh, about sort of you know some things that have died this year that that are, are relevant. Um, it, it doesn't. It it's just interesting, right? We I, th- there've been plenty of economic downturns and and re- recessions and and depressions and all that kind of stuff, and it just seems like this phenomenon of sports in the on the pro level will just not stop. It almost feels to me like there's still going to be plenty more stories to come, regardless of what happens, because there are dreamers out there. There are there are men, especially, who grew up and li- fa- fantasizing about sports and, and various other idiosyncrasies, I guess, that seem to drive a passion to keep doing this stuff. I, I think, while I'm not rooting for any of these things to add more content to my little show, um, I just I have a feeling I don't think we have anything to worry about in terms of sitting back and enjoying and, and marveling at at all the stuff that's still yet to come and, and, and maybe in cataclysmic fashion or maybe not. I don't know. You mentioned uh, the futsal league. And, you know, for one, I'm uh, this is this is the indoor soccer that's played in the rest of the world, that uh, this is kind of their offseason thing, their their skill building, if you will. Uh, some of the big clubs have these teams. So. I don't know how that translates to an American audience. Uh, Keith Tozer, uh, I think, is heading that up. And, you know, great guy, lots of experience. And, uh, you know, I personally am rooting for him. But, you know, we'll see how the league develops. It's, I think it's so early that it, it, it's really super hard to tell. Yeah, I'd, I had never even heard of it, to be honest with you, Tim, until you forwarded me the link to the website. And I took a look at it, and I didn't really – follow too closely what they're trying to do. Um, I, I, I will profess a near total ignorance about futsal other than the outlines of what Paul just described. So it would be hard for me to say anything about their prospects. 
Well, fair enough. I'm not sure how much how real it is. <laughs> so I don't think you have anything to worry about, at least not yet. Um, all right. Well, Andy, why don't you why don't you end up here with uh, you had uh, uh, I thought uh, and this is also, I think, uh, telling for, uh, I guess, the future of of media and sports and all that kind of stuff. You, you were you were saying an email that you were lamenting the erosion and the death of uh, of a couple of uh, arguably uh, go to uh, sports sites online in terms of uh, content and information. Why don't you throw that out there? Because I think it's actually a harbinger maybe of some of the stuff that I think we're going to sort of see in some sports in the next couple of years, too. But um, you know, yeah, about, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you prompted us to think about things that have gone under this year or trends in the industry. And, you know, I, I know there's there's people in dozens of cities who might have grown up loving their arena football team um, in the 1990s that are sad that the league has gone away. But I think the thing that probably affects the largest number of sports fans in the country this year is the sort of private equity fueled evisceration of Sports Illustrated. Um, And then for the younger generation, the destruction of Deadspin by the same forces. And, you know, I, I have very fond memories of Sports Illustrated from being a kid and subscribing and getting the football phone and um, the college and pro football preview issue and, and cutting out pictures of Carl Lewis and pasting them to my bedroom wall. And I think there's hundreds of thousands of kids, you know, who, who remember that, who are now in their you know thirties or forties um, like me. And, and then I think there's a younger generation of really um, intelligent sports fans who are looking for intelligent analysis and snarky commentary on sports that kind of punctures the, the, like the puffery of sports talk radio that were very loyal to Deadspin um, and saw it basically destroyed, um, you know, to some, to, to some extent at the peak of its powers. And, uh, I, I find that to be very sad, and I'm not. It's not clear to me now where people can turn for intelligent um, writing about sports, with those two sites being um, being killed off by their owners. Uh, and I think you've got no no shortage of great writers who are out there. But if if I've now got to go find those writers, you know, one at a time, you know, one of them's working for GQ, and one of them's with New York Magazine and one of them with the LA Times. Um, I don't know that there's going to be that one great site for people who want intelligent sports writing anymore. Um, I tried to figure out where to go after Deadspin died last month. And I guess the ringer is the best alternative, but it's really not, it's really a pale imitation of what Deadspin was at its best. So I, th- I think that's the saddest development of the past year. You know, we talked, early on about uh, memories growing up and the things that uh, kind of influenced us. And, and I'd have to put Sports Illustrated on that list. Uh, it was always such a thrill to me when the USFL would make a Sports Illustrated cover. It was like the, the kind of the pinnacle of getting attention at that point. And to see that go away has, you know, uh, has, you know, it's sad. It, it, it's sad the way that it changed and, and, and now is, you know, as you mentioned, uh, just a pale shadow of itself. Well, guys, this is uh, this has been great. Look, we've had uh, we've had a lot of uh, of, of uh, 
great uh, conversations this year. I mean, John Sterling and, and Dennis Murphy and Ed Tepper of the old MISL and Bob Carpenter. We got Howard Baldwin uh, talking about some old WHA stuff and a whole bunch of other just great conversations. We got into the CBA at all, uh, this year and and so much more to come. Um, uh, but this is uh, I, I hope to make this sort of a yearly thing because I'd love to be able to sort of come back next year at this time uh, and uh, and talk about sort of what what happened in 2020, which I'm sure is going to be just an absolute maelstrom of, of, of news and information and stuff in, in this realm uh, that we don't even have any idea about yet. And I look forward to talking with you about that as well as maybe our little predictions and um, and perhaps sort of a, a reassessment again. And, and if we're still passionate as we are this year about what's uh, about what's ahead in pro sports. But uh, I, I appreciate your indulging me and uh, and taking time uh, to, I guess, round out our year with uh, with a, uh, a discussion around this stuff. I hope our audience continues to uh, to enjoy this. I'm sure they will, because I, I know uh, the, just the, 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 the proverbial cards and letters we get from various corners of the globe. I'm just amazed at at, at the uh, the nerve we've struck with this stuff. And I look forward to to uh, keeping in touch and, and, and doing that for for next year and hopefully a couple more years down the road as well. And I wish you the best of the holiday season uh, coming up. And thank you for, for, for doing this uh, this week. And Tim, yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't say the same thing right back to you. I think that uh, this show is is just wonderful, and I think it's it's a terrific way to to preserve some of these leagues by by having people who have been directly involved who have or who have followed them so closely uh, to be able to kind of get on the record uh, with their thoughts, up, you know, and and to tell what actually happened from their perspectives. Uh, it's great, and you know, in uh, next year. I hope to also be talking about how uh, minor league baseball and major league baseball patched up their differences and and everything's <laughs> fine. So uh, <laughs> that, that's what yeah, I'm hoping for. We didn't for. talk about that one, but yes, I mean, the contraction of minor league baseball and, and, the, and the, oh, that's going to be a very interesting story to see if that unfolds and how. Just uh, the acrimony right now that's at least uh, showing itself publicly. I'm hopeful that that's showing that uh, some of the, the, the pressure that's been put on major league baseball has worked. Um, and that they'll come to a good agreement. Hey, Tim, Merry Christmas. Uh, happy Hanukkah to you and all of your listeners out there, and uh, look forward to another great year of uh, good seats still available. All righty, a mighty, mighty thanks to uh, our pals Andy Crossley and Paul Reeths and uh, what we hope is going to be a, a yearly escapade into uh, what happened during the course of the year and maybe what's going to happen in the uh, the next coming year when it comes to this crazy little genre that we call Good Seats Still uh, Available and our, our journeys uh, into that of defunct and uh, forgotten teams and leagues. It is a passion that uh, we, uh, we uh, have stumbled into, we uh, appreciate and, and always uh, amazed to find all kinds of other uh, fans of, of a similar ilk out there. Uh, you know who you are, and they literally in the tens and now almost approaching hundreds of thousands now of listens over the course of the last two and a half, almost three years uh, from all corners of the globe. And we appreciate as we round out this year and uh, and count our blessings. We thank each and every one of you for uh, for listening to the show, for for tuning in, for all your great commentary. We, Lord knows we've got uh, 
uh, emails and text messages and, and, and Twitter responses and, and all kinds of other social media stuff that uh, we, we appreciate. We, we can't acknowledge all of them. At some point, we'll figure out some kind of mechanism. Maybe we'll get into the world of Patreon. We'll get uh, some fan uh, input and maybe some uh, some shows from, from your uh, worlds out there. And we appreciate uh, just to, to know when. Uh, giving us uh, not only a listen, but sharing it with your friends and, and of course, uh, letting us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, we love all the uh, all the listening and uh, and all of your uh, your great commentary. Please, of course, keep them coming. And if you want to find out more about the show, if you're new to it and uh, you want to discover what uh, what you've been missing and maybe uh, sort of get geared up for what's coming up uh, down the road, by all means, check out our website. That's always the place to, to best find what's going on with this uh, silly little program. It's goodseatsstillavailable.com. Of course, you'll find uh, all the old episodes, all 144 of them now, and uh, you'll be able to find all the great imagery we've got. You'll find all the links to our our great uh, our, uh, guests' books and movies and all those kinds of things. And again, that's goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find all of our social media stuff there too, of course. On Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on uh, Instagram, of course, at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us there as well. Send us some email, by God. By all means, do so at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And don't forget, of course, to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You'll find a link to that on the website uh and we'll send you a little something every uh you know saturday or sunday and let you know what's going to be up uh uh this week's uh, common episode so you want to be in the know before uh before everybody else by all means uh do that as well and of course as we uh in the uh in the realm of thanking everybody for uh for a great year and hopefully another one to come we want of course go out of our way to say thank you uh tremendously as always to our pal dr jerry payne the good doctor, we call him, and his friends and colleagues at Podfly Productions. They uh, put together all of our pieces each and every week, and uh, we know how monotonous that can be. But we certainly appreciate Jerry and uh, his efforts, uh, as well as all of that at Podfly Productions. And of course, if you want to find out more about how to get into the podcasting game yourself and, and give it a whirl, by all means, check him and them out at Podfly. All right. We are done for this week. We are done for this year. Uh, We're going to take a little break next week, but uh, we'll look forward to uh, lots of great stuff coming up in January and then some uh, on this little show we like to call Good Seats Still Available. Until then, I wish you the happiest and healthiest of holiday seasons. Stay safe, everybody. We look forward to hearing you and talking to you and seeing you and conversing with you next year uh, in the year 2020. Boy, it's going to be something I'm pretty sure of that. Until then, take care, everybody, and uh, be safe.